Let me add, if I could just uh, add my words of um, prayer and congratulations to Scott. Had the chance to know Scott for years and years. Uh, we've taken youth together skiing on ski trips. He and I uh, made a quick dash to Nebraska one week to help Bill out up there because there wasn't enough workers, and he and I took off and drove to Nebraska to help with our church plant up there. Scott and I have um, planned and prayed and put together the call for years together, a student conference in the fall. And with a son still in the BCM ministry, I was thrilled when God called you to that ministry. So I'm very grateful. Uh, we are encouraging students that we know that are graduating to get plugged into the BCM. We're wanting to funnel kids that way because we believe Scott will do a quality Bible-based ministry at the BCM. So Scott, we're thrilled God. I'm thrilled God has you there. So I realized a few weeks ago when I really thought God might be leading us to uh, take a few Sundays and look at the church, just how serious that is. If you talk to photographers, they'll tell you the thing they hate to shoot the most is weddings. If you're out shooting scenery or sunsets, the mountains will be there tomorrow, and the sun all, in all likelihood will set again tomorrow, and you can get that same shot. But with a wedding, you have one shot to get it right. And for most brides, it matters whether you get the shot right. They would like to be in focus, at least on some of the shots. Grooms usually don't care so much, but if their bride's in focus, they're happy with the photographer. And I realize the Bible talks about the church being the bride of Christ. And so when I take a few Sundays to talk about biblically what the church should be like, I realize I'm talking about someone that the Lord loves very much. When I want us to look and bring the church into focus on what it was supposed to be all the way back just running to the Bible, because I'm telling you, church, the world has no idea what kind of church it needs. So the world has no opinion in saying what the church should be. And we sometimes don't know exactly. All of us probably grew up in different churches, and churches that we loved. I, my parents took me to church from a very early age, and so I have multiple churches that I just grew up assuming that the way they did it had to be right because that's all I'd ever known. And that's not necessarily true either. So we all bring different backgrounds of what we think church ought to be, and if we could get the church into focus, what the church would look like. And the weight kind of hit me again this week, realizing just how seriously God would take what I say on these Sunday mornings about the church. But that's what we're doing. We're trying, with God's help, to look again at what the church should be. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts, the book of Acts, in just a few minutes. But when we started the series, I wanted us to start answering some of these questions. What should the church look like? What does faithfulness in the church look like? What must a church believe to even be a church? What is the bare minimum? Or God would say, church may be in your name, but you're not a church. What is the bare minimum you have to believe to even be a church? What does leadership look like in a church? Who owns the church, and why does that even matter? These and a host of other questions we're trying to answer biblically. We are running to the Bible and the Bible alone to say, what should Trinity and every other New Testament church look like? We started a few weeks ago in Matthew 16 where the very first time the word church is ever used in the New Testament, and it's on the lips of Jesus. 
And we learn several things from Matthew 16 about what a church is at its core. Last week, we ran to Acts and looked at the last few verses of chapter 11 and the opening verses of chapter 13, and it's the church at Antioch. Church, I, I would just encourage you to read through those verses again. You want to talk about a beautiful snapshot of what a church should be. What the church in Antioch did, this new baby church in Antioch, in Acts chapter 13 is a watershed event. No church had done what they were doing. They actually thought about taking the gospel across the seas. No church had dreamed that big yet. But we also saw things about their reputation and their sacrifice and their desperation. Those answers are important because the quality of the church matters. Listen, when you read through the New Testament, you realize that Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, Ephesians makes that clear, he is the head. He's watching, and he cares what a church looks like. You don't have to turn there, but let me just give you a couple of examples of how much he cares. When you get to the very end of the New Testament, when churches have been running now for 50, 60 years, Jesus actually sends a few letters to some churches in the book of Revelation, and you get an idea of what he thinks of certain churches, what he likes and doesn't like in local congregations when you read those letters. Let me just give you a couple of the things he said. To the church that was in the city of Sardis, he said, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, church, can you imagine how devastating that would be if you love your church? And you love the Lord of the church. You love the head. And he says, here's my assessment of your church. Your reputation is you're alive, but I know the truth. You're, you're dead. If you have that kind of church, it doesn't matter whether you can get 50 people to come on a Sunday or 450 people because they're all coming to a dead church. Totally irrelevant how many you have. It's dead. To the church in Laodicea, he wrote, You say, I'm rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are, in fact, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The church in Laodicea was a very arrogant church. And they really believed that they had all the resources they needed. When, if they had looked at their buildings and budgets, and they would say, You know what? We are a rich church. And Christ said, You're, you're so arrogant. You're, you're so blind that you don't even know your own condition as a church. I say, as the head of the church, that you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And you guys think you're rich. Churches can be so blind they don't even assess their real condition. To the church in Ephesus, he wrote, you have abandoned the love that you had at the first. Some translations say you've left your first love. You still have all, all the activity going on at the church, but somewhere deep inside where the flame is supposed to be, it's gone out. You've lost your first love. And maybe the greatest compliment to any church at the end of the New Testament, if God could say anything of a church that he lets me be a part of, this phrase would be the compliment I would love to have him say to the church in the city of Philadelphia in the first century he says, you, this is a church he had nothing bad to say about. Of the seven, there's only two he had nothing bad to say about. 
He says, you have kept my word and not denied my name. Listen, would that, would that be enough for us if Christ could look at your church, the church you go to, this church, or if God moves you someday to another part of the country and another church you plug into and are faithful at, if he could look and say, here's two things about this church. You've kept my word, and you never once denied my name. Listen, I, that'd be enough for me. Christ is watching, and he has an opinion about every single church. And so I want us, for a few weeks, to run to the Bible and say, what is the blueprint? What does the snapshot look like if it's in focus? Because his opinion is the only one that matters. So Acts chapter 2 is another place we get a glimpse into maybe what a faithful church looks like. Acts chapter 2. These verses are very helpful because it is a picture of faithfulness. This church had only been alive for a few weeks or maybe months. It is a brand new baby church, a new church plant. And they haven't had a chance to develop traditions that don't fit in with God's plan. Acts chapter 2, we'll back up and start reading in verse 40. This is the, this is the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost says, and with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized, they were about 3,000 souls that day. Now, just stop for a second and try to imagine what it would have been like. You go from a church that's run in 120 which is roughly what they had in the upper room after Jesus' resurrection. And over the course of a few days, you go from 120 to 3,120. It is massive church growth. It is God sending his spirit and doing something that no, no man, no program could ever take credit for. And now you have a church of 3,000 brand new baby Christians. And what are they going to do with those people? Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves. Now, I want you to stop right there. I'm going to ask you to look up here just for a minute. You may know your Bible well enough to know exactly what the next phrases are, but don't look and read them for just a minute. You have the earliest first church, and Luke records for us, they devoted themselves to something. Don't cheat and read. What would you think he's going to say? This brand new baby megachurch. They were totally committed. The word devoted is a very strong word. They were devoted. Their hearts were into certain things. What's he going to say they devoted themselves to? Because it matters. Listen, I... The, Young couples over the years that I've got to do their um, marriage counseling before they get married, sometimes I tell them to do this. Find an older couple whose marriage you admire. I mean, they, they just seem to be best friends, and they love each other, and it's working for them, and they make marriage look attractive. And go ask them, as you're beginning marriage, go ask them, what is it you two have devoted yourself to that got this result? I mean, you're 30 years in to being best friends, and 
what are the priorities? What are the things you were committed to that got you from newlyweds to this? Because we would like to devote ourselves to those things. If you can get an older couple who's got a marriage that you're like, I'd give anything to have that. If you can get them to tell you what they're devoted to, you're a long way down the road in maybe having that kind of marriage yourself. Here you have a very faithful church, and Luke's fixing to tell us these are the things that they were devoted to. These are the things they gave themselves to. These are the things that were at the heart of this church. I would say the next few phrases are pure gold for churches that want to be faithful. So Luke is beginning to give us the first snapshot of that kind of church. Now, ultimately, let me tell you this before we read what they were devoted to. Ultimately, this is not a passage about the leadership in the church. Although I have no doubt that the leaders were devoted to these things. But ultimately, this is not a passage about the leadership of the church. This is a passage about the heart of the church. He says they devoted themselves to these things. This was the people's devotion. This had become a church devotion. Whatever he's going to say next, was it's not a picture of the pastors in this church running around trying to keep everything propped up, trying to keep everything spinning. Listen, encouragement in God's family is very important, and it's biblical. We need to encourage one another. This is not a passage about the pastors having to come around and keep fanning the flame to keep it going. These people devoted themselves to these things. This is a passage about the heart of the church in Jerusalem. And I would just tell you this. Any organization in the world, any organization... If you can tell me what they are truly devoted to, I probably know all I need to know about that organization. Or any individual, if you can tell me what they are truly, truly devoted to, I can probably tell you whether he and I will be good friends or not. Because that is the heart of the matter. Some churches today seem to be confused about what they're to be devoted to. They seem to be confused about what's at the center. And I, I, I have to try to take, because I've, I, I grew up, I mean, my dad was a deacon in a church. I grew up in a church that I just assumed they had everything right. I, I have to try to peel all that back, the things that I think were good, that I just grew up that were traditions, and say, Doug, if you could, if you could quit looking through all those filters and just say, what does Scripture say about the church at Antioch or the church at Ephesus or the church at Jerusalem or those seven letters I like this, but I can't stand this, Christ said. What are those things? Well, let's read in verse 42. There's four obvious things they devoted themselves to. And we're going to read several verses here. And we're going to look at the four obvious things they devoted themselves to. And then if time permits, three results that came out of these four commitments. Three results of those. Verse 42. And they, those 3,000, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, they were breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and sincere or generous hearts. They were praising God, and they were having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. In verse 42 alone, you have their four commitments, the four things they were absolutely heart and soul devoted to. In the verses that follow, you have at least three things that come up as a result of those four things. But first, the four obvious, and we, it won't take us long because they're, they're, the, they're the bread and butter of churches. They're things that you, you should never let go of in a church. First of all, he says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Number one, this was a teaching church. This church, this faithful church, was a teaching church. They were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' theology, the apostles' teaching. What the apostles taught, these people loved. They were hungry for truth. Now, I'll just tell you, we have no living apostles today. So, you can't go and hear an apostle who saw the risen Christ, walked with Christ during his earthly ministry, you can't go and hear them preach and teach. But what they taught, God inspired them to write. And we have recorded in the pages of the New Testament the apostles' teachings. John taught it for a while, then God had him write it. Peter taught it for a while, then God had him write it. Matthew taught it for a while, then God had him write it. And we have the written record Folks, these, these early believers were devoted to learning. The church was a teaching center. Hungry for the truth. I, listen, I have no doubt that that is why when you read the qualifications for people in ministry, for pastors, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, every, every qualification is about the character of the man except one. The only function that's mentioned in the qualifications for leading a church is that he has to be able to teach. Everything else has to do with the man. But the one thing he has to be able to do is the thing that the church in Jerusalem was devoted to, studying, learning, teaching. The heart of the church has to do with teaching God's word. After Wednesday night in here, Wendy and I slipped over to where the youth were having their Bible study, and uh, Brian and Roxy and three high school kids that were in there, we were visiting with them about what they had just studied, and, and they were kind of laughing. They said, we're studying the parables on Wednesday night. And one of them said, the one we studied tonight was not a happy, feel-good parable. So they told me which one it was, and it wasn't. There was nothing happy or feel-good about that parable. But there was a part of me that thought, God, thank you for Trinity, where we plan on teaching every parable, whether they make you feel good or not. We plan on teaching every part of the Sermon on the Mount, no matter how it makes you feel. We, give us enough time, and through the Sunday school teachers, and through women's Bible studies, and through retreats, and Wednesday nights, give us enough time, we hope, to preach the whole thing, Old and New Testament. We, we want to be a teaching church. It, it's interesting to me because there are churches today that are moving away from teaching and preaching, and they're moving to experiences. 
And I just want to remind you, church is not an event. Church is not an experience. It is not about the excitement or the emotion. Now, let me try to illustrate that biblically. What had just happened a few weeks before the passage we're reading? The greatest, most emotional, exciting, spiritual event you could ever be a part of in a church. Tongues of fire came down and landed on people's heads. And the sound of rushing wind came blowing through the city. And men got up and preached in languages they had never studied. And 3,000 people got saved. You want to talk about excitement and enthusiasm and an event. And even with all of that experience, these people run back to studying the apostles' teaching. Experience, emotion, events are not enough. What these people needed, even after that amazing experience, was instruction faithful teaching and they devoted themselves you don't hear them saying what we need is another experience they're saying we're devoted to hearing what the apostles are teaching as truth you know the new testament says a time will come when people won't put up with sound doctrine they want to have their ears tickled not this church totally devoted and committed to hearing god's word taught you know, the, the commitment of a church is this. We intend to study not so we can know more. Please hear me. First Corinthians says knowledge puffs up. We intend to study so that after we have studied, we can bow in submission to whatever he says. We read, we study, and then we bow. The goal in knowing the heart of Christ is is so we can bow in submission to the words of Christ. So we read it, we study it, and then we bow and obey. And the next week we get back together and we read and we study, and then we bow. That's the goal. Number two, they weren't just committed to the apostles' teaching, but they were committed to the fellowship. This was a teaching church, and this was a fellowshipping church. They were devoted to life together. They were devoted to love and support and acting like a family. They shared their burdens. They shared their joys. They shared their life together. They enjoyed each other's company. Now, I want to ask without you answering out loud, but, but do you truly enjoy being in the presence of God's people? I mean, is is Sunday really, not that we all see everything the same and not that our personalities are all the same, but is getting together and just visiting with other Christians and catching up with what their week was like and sharing your burden or maybe a victory God gave you this week and just being together, is, is that part of the highlight of our week? When you read through the New Testament, fellowship involved a number of things. It involved real friendships. Crying together, rejoicing together, sharing meals together, sometimes just to get together to eat together. It involved meeting each other's needs. It involved, we don't do this very often, confessing sins to one another so we can hold each other accountable. Real fellowship involved praying together, sacrificing together, doing missions together. I, I want to tell you, and I, I believe this for a while, and I realize there's people who don't, but if two lost men can experience fellowship together, and they can. There's, there's some great fellowship lost people have. 
and two Christians can do the exact same thing and have fellowship together. This isn't Christian fellowship just because it's two Christian men doing the very same thing that two lost men did. If lost people can experience it, it's not Christian fellowship. Just because it's experienced by two believers doesn't make it Christian fellowship. What we're doing is way deeper than that. There's a Christ element to our fellowship. There's a spiritual element to our fellowship. Just because you and I might go fishing together and have a great time, that doesn't make it Christian fellowship. That may be two Christians having fellowship, but that's not New Testament. You, you don't devote yourself to that. Real fellowship, which I fear is lacking today in so many of our lives. Maybe because we put up barriers. Maybe because we're so busy we don't have time to really share life together. I, I remember in high school, and what I'm going to say about these two young men, Wendy and I have said to them sitting in our living room, so I'm not talking behind their back. There was two young men in high school several years ago in our youth ministry that were as different as could be. One of them at the time was, was probably the greatest athlete at the high school. There, there were times on Friday night from the line of scrimmage, he was the running back, that from the 20-yard line first play, they would pitch the ball to him, and he'd run it 20 yards for a touchdown. Clinton would get a flag. They'd bring it back. They'd do the exact same play from the 10-yard line, pitch it to him, and he'd run 90 yards this time for a touchdown. Just that kind of athlete. The other kid, and I've said this to his face, he was like the high school's greatest academic nerd. They could have gone their whole four years of high school and never connected. And Christ totally got a hold of this guy's heart, the athlete. And he totally got a hold of this guy's heart, the academic, studious nerd. I mean, this kid, straight A's. If he made a 97, he cried. This kid, if he made a 97, his mom cried. <laughs> I mean, they, they were worlds apart. And they, they became inseparable. It was probably the greatest friendship at the high school. You never saw one without the other. They would show up for church-wide visitation. We, we wouldn't have adults showing up for visitation. These two would show up, juniors in high school. And I'm like, you, you guys want some names to go visit? And they're like, we, we already got high school kids we're going to visit tonight. We, we, made, we printed off brochures. We didn't really like yours. And out they would go. Listen, the world would have told them, you guys will never be friends. And they would have said, you know what? You're right. We're brothers. We're more than friends. Listen, Christ so changes people that the fellowship is, is different. And if, if you're missing that in your life, it may be time that we start focusing on this part of what the early church was devoted to. We, we need each other. If, if I could be totally honest, there are times I, I... Here's why I need you. I need to be with people who don't mock the things that are precious to me. And so many times in the world, they mock what I treasure. And I just need to be around somebody who doesn't mock what I love. And you're it. You're it. The church is it. We need each other. We need to lean on each other. And these people were devoted to the fellowship. I, I just fear in too many churches, maybe American churches, maybe it's the busyness or the pretending, we lack that. So it was a teaching church, and it was a fellowshipping church. And 
going to say more about fellowship tonight because there's some great verses in the, in the New Testament about fellowship. We'll go a little deeper on fellowship tonight at church. Number three, it was a worshiping church. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. Now, there are some people who believe that's just a reference to eating. I don't think so. I don't think these early believers were devoted to eating. They weren't Baptists yet. They had to be devoted to something. And later in the passage, it talks about that they shared meals in each other's homes together. So they did eat together. They loved hanging out together. This is something else. Oftentimes in the early church, they referred to the Lord's Supper as the breaking of bread. Because Jesus did that. On the night he was crucified, Jesus broke bread and passed it out to the disciples and said, take, this is my body. And they used that phrase to describe sometime the Lord's Supper. We've lost a little bit of that with the already pre-made wafer crackers. The bread never gets broken. Not that that's necessarily bad, but we miss that. Jesus was saying, this is my body, and then he just crushed it and broke it. And these people were devoted to that. When I say they're devoted to worship... There's probably never a more sacred moment in worship in a church than when we gather around the Lord's table. And we say, we're remembering your sacrifice. We're remembering the one thing that brings us all together. We're remembering the one moment that can take an athlete and an academic and bring them together. It's the cross. But even beyond that, when you read through the other verses, we read verse 43 says they were filled with awe. That's worship. Verse 47 says they were praising God. Praising God, filled with awe, and devoted to the breaking of bread together and celebrating the cross. Please never forget, church, that at this moment in history, there were no cross jewelry. There was no cross decorations. You couldn't go into a Christian bookstore and buy decorated crosses that look absolutely nothing like the real cross. They're all frilled out and made to look beautiful. Every cross these people had ever seen was brutal, despised, bloody, violent, and cursed. That was their only picture of the cross. Roman citizens couldn't even be crucified on a cross. If you had your Roman citizenship, they wouldn't do this to you. Rome had figured out the most humiliating and agonizing way to kill a man. It, listen, the cross is a picture of humanity at its worst, and tens of thousands of men died on them. And these crazy Christians decide to celebrate the cross with a meal. This was unheard of in the first century. The cross was a central part of their worship, and they even had a meal that celebrated what happened on the cross. They worshiped. Now, I'm going to ask you something, and you don't owe me an answer to this question, but you do, you do owe God one. When we get past technical difficulties and words that run off the screen and sound systems that get glitches, do you really worship? I mean, is the first 30 minutes of this service just what we do till we get to the preaching, or do you really, is this a worshiping church? Do, do you cry out from your heart in worship 
That, that, that ought to be something we are devoted to, not something we do, something we're devoted to. In this early church, they were totally committed to the apostles' teaching. They were a studying, teaching church. And they loved the fellowship and hanging out together. They were a fellowshipping church, but they were also a worshiping church. Well, here's the last of the four things they were devoted to. They were devoted to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. This was a praying church. It literally says in the original language, they devoted themselves to the prayers. It has the definite article. I have no doubt they were devoted to praying, but they were devoted to the prayers, specific prayers. If you want an example of that, the very first verse of chapter 3, the very next chapter in Acts, gives us an example. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Luke is talking about a specific commitment to specific family prayer, corporate prayer, the church praying together. They were devoted, no doubt, to praying, but they were devoted to the prayers, the time of prayer. I, I actually, um, in studying Thursday for this message, felt like I needed to apologize to the church for something Wednesday night that was so not intentional on my part. But on Wednesday nights, the adults gather in here for 30 minutes of Bible study and 30 minutes of prayer. And we're going through Philippians, and it's a discussion Bible study. We'd love to have you on Wednesday nights. But the discussion was so good on Wednesday night, I, and I was part of it. I was asking questions, and people were giving feedback, and that we blew right past the 30 minutes of Bible study. And we ended up with about 10 minutes to pray. And that's, that's nobody's fault but mine. And as important as the Bible study and hearing people give their input and talk about what this passage means, it led to the neglect. I was not devoted to the prayers. And by God's grace, any Wednesday nights that I get to lead, that won't happen again. We are to be a praying people. I, church, I'm not sure that devoted would be an appropriate word to describe the contemporary church's commitment to prayer. Devoted might be a bit strong for us. I'm not sure we really believe that personal prayer and corporate prayer matters, that it moves God, that it changes things. That's why today's church will show up in mass for a Christian concert, or they'll show up in big numbers for some famous person that's going to give their testimony, or they'll show up in big numbers if it's a Christian comedian. But if it's just prayer, we're not very devoted. We're just not. It literally says they were continually, steadfastly devoting themselves in prayer. Some translations actually say that. They were continually, steadfastly devoting themselves to the prayers. So it's a faithful church, totally committed to biblical teaching, genuine fellowship, Christ-centered worship, and passionate prayer. I think there are people today who would say, you know what, you can't build a church on those four things anymore. Unapologetic we teach the Bible, and we pray like we really believe it matters, and we have fellowship. We love each other like nobody else loves people, and we worship. We're in awe 
and we praise God, and we're devoted to even gathering around the Lord's table. Four things the early church was committed to. And if, if, you, if you read through the next few verses, and we'll talk about them tonight because we're out of time, but let me just tell you the three things that showed up. As people began to have needs and people in that church found out about them, they were willing to sell things to meet other people's needs. So they had sacrificial love. That was a result of those four commitments. What came out of it was sacrificial love. And then it says they would gather in each other's homes and eat meals together with glad hearts. They had shared joy. Authentic love and shared joy. And then the last verse says, day by day, God was adding to those who were being saved. They had real evangelism. Sacrificial love, shared joy, and real evangelism. All of those three things flowed out of the four things they were devoted to. And I, I think there are churches today who decide we're just going to chase joy rather than saying we're going to be devoted to vo these four things and out of these four things grow joy. And we just skip these four and chase joy. Or we'd like to have that kind of sacrificial love, but we're not willing to pay the price and be devoted to these four things, so we just chase love. Or we're not a church that's really devoted to these four things. We just want to chase programs to do evangelism. I think Acts 2 is saying, listen, be devoted to these four things. And as God's Spirit moves in a church, these three things can flow out of these four. They were devoted to these four, and then these three happened. If you're doing verse 42, there's a real good chance verses 45, 46, and 47 can happen. Well, tonight, we'll finish up looking at those three things that flowed out, and then really some staggering verses about fellowship. I invite you back tonight if you can be here at 630. If you're part of the church, you're in the church, you're in Christ, would you take a moment as we sing in just a minute, even if you missed the first few words, and just talk to Christ about these four things? God, what can I do to make us a church that's more devoted, really devoted to these four things? And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, this passage ends that day by day God was adding to them those who were being saved, and today could be the day that he adds you. Today could be the day that your, your heart is so moved to fall in love with Christ. And I would be right down here, and if you, would, you want to come down and just say, listen, I, I've been playing the game for a long time, or I, I know I'm not a believer and today would be the day. So would you stand with me and we'll pray. Great passage about a faithful church. Father, as our worship team comes up to lead us in worship before we leave, that I'm just, I want to be a worshiper in a minute. I want to stand on this front row and let my heart say to you that I love you. And God, I pray you'd bless the fellowship in this place. I pray you'd go strong, grow stronger and sweeter. Uh, we really would love the brothers and the sisters. I pray that our commitment to the Bible and to bow no matter what it says, to submit no matter what it says, would grow stronger. God, I, I want to see these three things flow out of the life of this church. I want to hear you say what you said to the church at Philadelphia. You kept my word and you never denied my name. God, even what Brian was telling us about what the church is in fa face, facing in Russia, it's, it's going to grow harder to be an Acts 2 church.
We know that's coming. Find us faithful in Christ's name. Amen. Larry, would you lead us?